0: Now, I ripped this off kind of, um, but the guy that, that wrote the, the n- novel series, Lord of the Rings, he kind of ripped it off from Jesus anyway, so it's okay. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at the return of the king. And if you've been with us through the uh, entire tribulation period in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through chapter 19, you've uh, probably been groaning like, when are we going to get out of the judgment? When are we going to get into the return of the king? Uh, when are we going to look at the second coming and the, the setting up of the eternal kingdom? And, and we're there. Today we end tribulation and we come into the return of the king. And so uh, this awesome painting is there to kind of explain some of it. But, but before we get there, let's go ahead and just start in chapter 19 in verse 1. After these things... I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And so in verse 1 and 2, and we'll continue on through verse 1 and 6, 1 through 6, but in verse 1 and 2, we see the phrase again that we saw in chapter 1, verse 19, and then in the beginning of chapter 6, after these things, metatauta. After these things, he says, he hears a loud voice. Remember, this is John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's being given this vision by the Lord And as he gets this vision, he hears a loud voice of a great multitude that are in heaven. So they're hearkening, they're they're able to somehow know what's going on on earth. This great harlot, Mystery Babylon, and then Babylon the Great, the city that we looked at last week, have been destroyed, they've been judged, and they are saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. What's interesting about this is this is the Alleluia Chorus. And I won't sing it for you because I can't this morning. But the point is, I didn't realize this till this week, but the New Testament never uses the word Alleluia, which means praise the Lord, until Revelation chapter 19. I don't know about you guys, but that baffled me when I heard that. It's not in the New Testament until this chapter, which is fitting because it's going to describe not only the final judgment of the wicked, but also the return of Jesus. So what more fitting place in Scripture to see the word Alleluia, which means praise the Lord. And if you've been with us through all of these chapters, chapter 6 through 18 so far, Maybe you're like me and going, praise the Lord, we're finally out of these judgments and these great terrible things that are happening. But then in verse 2, we see that praise is happening in heaven, but we haven't seen the completeness, the, the, the period at the end of the tribulation sentence yet. Praise is happening in heaven even when tribulation is continuing on earth. And as believers, we have the opportunity. We don't have to wait until heaven when all of the so be it, the amen, all of the promises are fulfilled to worship God. We can do it now. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of confusion, in the middle of virus scares, in the middle of is the government going to go down, in the, in the middle of whatever it is you have going on that has caused anxiety in your life, you can praise God and say hallelujah for power and glory and honor belong to him even now before he hasn't completed all of the things that feel like their intention right now. He is worthy of our praise the Lord. We don't have to wait till the chapter 19 that we will experience personally. We can say hallelujah and echo the praises of heaven now. So in verse 2, praise is happening in heaven even when tribulation continues on the earth. But here's where the mature Christian life is set apart from the murmuring and the complaining Christian. Murmuring versus maturity is shown when amen happens before our circumstances change. Read all throughout the Old Testament. Victory is had before victory is obtained practically. Victory is had in praising when things aren't yet fulfilled. And so, amen, where they say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, because they see what's coming. But then they also say, amen. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, the word amen means, so be it. We say at the end of our prayers, and sometimes we say it not really knowing what it means, but the word means, so be it. There are two words in our language that no matter anywhere you go around the world, the word Alleluia is in every language, and the word Amen is in every language. Isn't that kind of interesting? And so everyone around the world, when you say the word Alleluia, they know what you mean. And everyone around the world, when you say Amen, they know that it means so be it. And so I don't think that's a coincidence. So they're saying right now, righteous and true are your decisions, Lord. You are in control. Now, if they're looking at what we've been reading about through the Great Tribulation, you might be tempted to go, is God in control of that? Is God causing the case? Is he judging? This is a loving God. We know him in Jesus. Why would a loving God do X, Y, or Z from chapter 6 all the way through 18? Well, because he's righteous and because he's just, he is loving. He's not willing that any should perish. But if you reject his ways, there is a curse attached to that. There's, not, there's consequences for sin. And so continuing on in verse 3, after he says they're praising him, For his judgment on the harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he is avenged on her, the blood of his servants shed by her. Verse 3, again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. If you remember from last chapter in chapter 18, the judgment of the system of Babylon All those who are witnessing your judgment and mourning over the loss of the system that they put their hope in are looking at the smoke rising up. But here it says that the saints are praising God. They're saying, praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, if you know anything about driving down the road and seeing something caught on fire, that the smoke doesn't rise up forever and ever. It rises up until it's consumed and there's no more smoke but the judgment of the wicked is not a finite time judgment it is a judgment that is everlasting we've been born again to an everlasting life the wicked those who have rejected jesus christ will be judged and her smoke will rise forever and ever it will not stop the worm is not satisfied the, the grave is not you know like The fires are not quenched in hell. And so all of that to be said, that righteous and true are his ways, and her judgment is forever and ever, verse 4. And it says here, the 24 elders. Now, if you remember all the way back to the beginning in chapter 4 and 5, we saw these 24 elders and the four living creatures, which are the cherubim and the seraphim, they fell down. They worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! There's that those words again. So be it. Praise the Lord. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty, mighty thunderings saying, here it is again. Hallelujah." For the Lord God Omnipotent reigns. So they're singing a praise song. And if you are from a church that has done a lot of hymns, Hallelujah. Maybe that's not a hymn. It's probably a more contemporary song. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. That was like 90s, Michael W. Smith. Maybe that's not your jam. But anyway, my point is they're singing a praise song. But verse 5 isn't so much praise the Lord, just people saying it, it's praise our God, and then it lists out who should praise God, it's a command to praise. Now, we're Americans, we like to do what we like to do, and if someone tells us to do something, we're apt to go, I don't really want to, even if it's something we want to do, we will back off and go, well, I was going to, but now you're making me, I ain't doing it, But the voice comes from heaven and says, Praise the Lord, all you his saints, his servants, those who fear him, both small and great. So it says, Praise our God. And then it lists who? All his servants. All you who fear him. All with and without positions. Those who are from high estate and those who are lowly all of you praise our God. Now, I think this is kind of something we struggle with because we don't feel like we should have to serve anybody. And yet the first call to praise our God is to servants. Do you see yourself as a joint heir with Jesus and not a servant of Jesus? When people ask you to do things for Jesus, do you get all in a a spot where you're verklempt and you're like, well, I don't like being told what to do. Or is your heart that you're willing to serve when God calls you to serve? Here, it says that all the servants that are in heaven, it calls them servants, not just sons and daughters, but also servants. It says, praise the Lord. And it is a command. It is like a, a worship conductor. It is like a uh, you know the leader of an army, a general saying, Get your battle clothes on, let's go. But here he's saying, praise the Lord. And then verse 6, hallelujah. They're saying, praise the Lord, because God, omnipotent, reigns. Now, there are lots of words in the Bible that I think I know what they mean, but when I come across them, I look them up again just to make sure I haven't mixed it together. And this was one of them, omnipotent. And the word means having unlimited power, able to do anything. Now, this is a group that's praising God while there's still chaos going on in the world. He's judging the world, and yet the judgment's not yet complete. The world is getting an army together to fight against Jesus and all of his saints. We're going to see that. But here it says that before the battle is won, practically, the saints are praising God for his unlimited power he can do anything can god make a rock that he cannot pick up yes (laughs) and no and yes and like it's confusing but the point is is they are praising god because he is able to do anything how many of you in your prayers struggle with that can god do anything or not God took a leprous man and healed him by touching him. By the way, touching a leper is how you contract leprosy. It's not how you heal it. He can do anything. He he can wash us of our sins. He can raise the dead. Matter of fact, he proved it. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about his resurrection. He can raise the dead, folks. And yet I think many times the things we struggle with the most is we think our situation is harder than raising from the dead. We do. We struggle with that. And yet they're praising him as the one who can do anything. And it's a celebration over God's power to do whatever he wants, even though he hasn't fulfilled every promise yet. And so verse 7, he goes on to say, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. We used to sing a song every week in the Methodist church I grew up in. It was like the same chorus every week. I got so tired of it, but it's stuck in my head now. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice, let us rejoice and be glad. In it and be glad in it this is the day that the lord has made i will rejoice and be glad in it this is the day this is the day that the lord has made and we sing that as a pick me up in the morning but do you know what that verse is about this day The day where God unleashes wrath on his enemies. It wasn't a pick-me-up song. Although for us who are oppressed by the world, who experience the tension with a world that completely rejects Jesus when we're trying to follow him, it is a praiseworthy song. Judgment on our enemies. Now Jesus says, pray for your enemies, right? Pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for those who would mock you. Pray for those that actually accuse you of wrong, even though you haven't done it. Pray for them because if you don't pray for them and they don't get saved, they will be judged just like you would have been before Christ. So, this is the day that the Lord has prepared. This is the day. It's going to be done. And all of his enemies will be laid flat. They will be made his footstool. He will put his foot down on them and they will be done. Be like David when he conquered Goliath. He put his foot on his neck of Goliath. And then he chopped his stinking head off. That wasn't unrighteous. David didn't do that to prove how great he was. David did that because that man was blaspheming God. Vengeance. On God's enemies and on the enemies of God's people. Vengeance on the people that have been spilling the blood of the saints for centuries. They're doing it right now, folks. People that hate the cause of Christ and His people are lopping off the heads of believers because they believe in Jesus, not because of their call to arms and war. And so this is the day the Lord's talking about, and it is a celebration For the saints. So in verse 7, he's saying, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to her, Excuse me, then he said to me, Write blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so he says the groom, he talks about a groom He talks about a bride, and we sung about that this morning, right? Like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church that's ready for you. And this is the day, this is the moment we were just singing about. They're praising God for who he is. And then he says um, in verse 8, to her it was granted, excuse me, verse 7, be ready for the marriage of, of the lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. The right to wear the the pure linen, the pure, beautiful white dress of a bride. It was granted to her the right to wear that dress. Clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. She's adorned not just in a garment, but she's adorned in her works. It's her works that make her beautiful, not her garments. Her garments are what she has done with what she's been given. And so the groom is here is Jesus Christ. And he's appearing like a groom coming back to receive his bride. In a Jewish wedding, you would be betrothed to your husband. And there would be a dowry paid. And at the point that the dowry was paid, the man would not, okay, let's set a date he would leave. And he would go and he would leave the family to prepare a place. And he would build a lean-to or some sort of building onto his parents' house, his father's house, if you will. And as he prepares that place, he, the, the bride wouldn't know when he was coming back. It would just be when he's done. When he gets all the materials, when he gets all the lumber, when he builds on this house, when it's prepared, when it's ready for her to come in and for them to consummate the relationship, then he would return for her at an hour that she did not expect. And then as he returned, he would take her away for the marriage feast. And there would be a feast for days. Many people would never go on a vacation. This would be the time where they would let loose. And the, 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 the father of the bride would put on this celebration and they would spend buku. You think our weddings cost a lot? They would go to the nines because they wouldn't take vacation the rest of their life. This would be the time where they would do it. And so they would celebrate the consummation of the marriage and there would be weeks. People would take vacations to celebrate with the, the couple. And so Jesus comes back for his bride. She is adorned in her works. She's adorned with the righteousness of Christ. But I want to talk about what we've been clothed in. He's talking about righteousness here. But if you turn with me to Isaiah in chapter 64, I've mentioned this many times before, but I don't know if I've actually gone there. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah talks about our works. It's kind of hard to get to, but if you get to Jeremiah as you're turning left, you're almost there. Isaiah chapter 64. Almost there. Some of you on your phones are like, I'm already there. Totally just beat you. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. And I'm in chapter 66. Pages got stuck together. Isaiah is talking about us as his people. He says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. He's talking about mankind's situation. Now, at a cursory glance, you're looking at this and you're saying we're all unclean and we understand that. But in this context, the idea, we, we think about the things that we can do for God to prove to him our righteousness. We, we prove to the word, our world our righteousness by what we do. And that's not what he's talking about here because he says all of our righteousness, anything that we can do to produce something that looks good to God is like an unclean thing. It's like filthy rags. And forgive me, but this is the insidiousness, not of just of sin, but of us trying to measure up our our works and present them before God and prove ourselves. He says our righteousness, our righteousness, anything that we can do that's good is like filthy rags. And the word there in the Hebrew is a used menstrual cloth. Now, that might cause you to recoil inside. That's the the effect it has on God, by the way. That's what he looks at our works, and he sees a filthy garment. And so all of our righteous deeds, anything that we can do to try to add to what Christ has done for us is like a filthy garment. And yet if you turn with me to the left, actually, to the left, to the left, chapter 61, verse 10 Isaiah writes there concerning salvation. And in verse 10, he writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Not in myself, not what I have done, but I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me. "...with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom, as a groom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations." So it's not what we produce, but it's how when God clothes us, then everything that comes from us becomes a righteous garment. No longer filthy rags, but now robes of righteousness. We're clothed in our labors and our works as we are covered in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He makes even the filthy things we do into robes of righteousness. But it's all as we trust in him not ourselves not our own works for that righteousness and if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 3 Paul does a better job kind of bookending this truth Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 He says but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed The law was how you would work yourself into a place of righteousness. But the law would never cleanse a person. It would only show that a person was unrighteous. But he says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned, They've fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a payment that turns away wrath by His blood. Through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So our righteousness now is had by faith in Jesus. And so in verse 9, he goes on to say, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. Blessed are those who are called to be a part of the celebration. So we have the groom, Jesus Christ. We have the bride The church, which is the bride of Christ, for some of you men, that might be weird. And for some of you ladies, that feels weird because you're already married, some of you. But the idea is that in heaven, there is no marriage. We will not be given to one another. Which, for some of you brides, you're like, that's going to be weird. I love my husband. And some of you, you're like, finally, a good husband, (laughs) a righteous husband. Because you all have sinful husbands, I'm sorry, but I've you know, uh, I am one. But the idea is, is that we will be betrothed, and then we will be married to Jesus Christ. There will be one matrimony, state of matrimony in heaven. And so, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. And if you remember, there's a couple of times where Luke 14, but also let's turn to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as a marriage supper, a feast, whom everybody has been invited to. There's distinguished guests. In Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1, he says a famous phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is always trying to tell us what heaven is like by giving parables, something that we would understand to describe something that we at this point, have a hard time understanding. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways. One went to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Does that sound like the tribulation? God's invited his creation. He's invited people to come and be a part of this wedding feast. But there are many who have called this wedding a, you know, a light they took this wedding lightly. And so they were busy. They went to their farms. Hey, I got stuff to do. They went to their businesses. That's where their worth is. That's where their treasure is. And what it says here is that those who are ungodly, the rest, they seized the servants and they, they spilled their blood. But when he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and he burned up their city, singular, Babylon, last week, then he said to his servants, The wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways. And as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. I underlined that in my Bible. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. There's this idea of garments again. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in without a wedding garment. And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I read this story and go, man, this king's pretty furious. Like you don't come to my wedding feast. I'm going to send an army to kill you. Whoa, seems out of hand. And then Finally, there's a group of people that do come and one man is in there found not to be wearing a wedding garment. And then he sends him out and then says, the man who sent out there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So he's not talking about a literal wedding. He's talking about the kingdom, right? And the good and bad are called into the kingdom. But when they are sent out because they didn't come in wearing the right garment, it's not because they didn't wear the right clothes. And he's showing partiality. See, in that day, if you were called to a wedding, you wouldn't get your nice, I'm going to buy a new dress for this wedding. You would come dressed as you were. You would be given a garment on the way in and you would wear that garment and everybody would look exactly the same except for the bride and the groom. See, the wedding would not be about you. It would be about the bride and the groom. And the bride and the groom would be adorned and decked out. And then everybody else would look like nothing. And the idea was the king would supply a garment for everyone invited. Just like us. We've been invited to the feast. Stop trying to clothe yourself in garments so you'll look good when you get there. You can't take anything with you. He's supplying your righteousness. All you have to do is put off the old man and his deeds and allow Jesus to put on the new man in his deeds. And so everyone would look the same. Everybody would be adorned in the righteous robes. He says, many are called, but few are willing to come arrayed in the garment that the king supplies. Stop trying to clothe yourself. Be clothed in what he supplies. But then verse 10, it says there, that as he's, he's caught up in this heavenly scene, Verse 10 says, after seeing all this, John fell at the feet of the messenger and started to worship him because he was so taken up with what he had seen. And what it says here is there's this sharp rebuke from this messenger. He says, see to it that you do not do that. In the original language, in the Greek, in the technical language, it's very staccato in its words. Don't do that like when you tell your kids not to touch a hot surface, don't do that. Or when you tell them not to run into the street or stop hitting their sibling, don't do that. Don't worship me. Now, John receives the correction, but he's going to do this again in Revelation chapter 22. He's going to start to worship the messenger instead of the one who sent him. He says, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Any prophecy that you read, any prophecy that you receive, it's always about Jesus. And if it doesn't point you to Jesus, then it's probably not a prophecy from God. So in verse 11, he continues. Now I saw heaven open up, And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe that had been dipped in blood. And his name is called... The Word of God. Does that make you think of John chapter one? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So his name is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven were clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They followed him on white horses. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds with ten thousands of his saints. His army that follows him are clothed in white garments, fine linen, and they followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and many manuscripts actually say a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. If you think about it, kings are kings over who? Are they kings over kings? Over nations? Or are they usually kings over a people? Over a tribe? But he will be king over all kings, king over all lords, lord over all lords. And I submit to you that what the Bible teaches is that he right now is king over all rulers and leaders. He is lord over all rulers and leaders. And you may not think that because there's been some pretty ungodly kings. But even the Old Testament says that God chose Nebuchadnezzar. He chose Pharaoh who enslaved his people for 400 years. He chose these ungodly leaders because he uses even the wrath of man to bring about his plans and to praise him. Nothing can stop his plans. Remember, our Lord God omnipotent, he can do anything, reigns. And so as we see this, what I want to point out to you, and I don't have time this morning, but in 1 Chronicles in chapter 15, King David has actually already tried to take, remember the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant, and they had taken the Ark and put it on an ox cart, and when they stole it, the enemies of Israel were able to defeat the Israelite people. And so, fast forward, they've been given the, the cart back that had the oxen, and it also had the Ark of the Covenant, its return. The glory's returning to Israel. And so King David goes out there presumptively, takes the cart, has worship leaders, and actually starts to lead worship. And when he leads worship, he actually travels and he starts to lead worship and travels. And because they're not carrying the ark, the presence of God on their shoulders, like the Old Testament law said, one of the guys reaches out because it starts to stumble. Even though it's on a new cart didn't have the shock absorbers, starts to roll off the cart, and one of the guys reaches out, touches the ark, and it instantly kills him because they didn't follow the rules of how the ark was supposed to be brought into the temple. And so David freaks out. He puts he leaves the, the ark in the place that it's in. It actually ends up being a blessing to the man that allows it to be stored there. And years later, David kind of backs up he reads the old testament he goes oh wait we tried to usher in god's presence the wrong way and so they go back out there they put the rods in the little eyelet holes on the sides of the ark he gets the right people from the right tribe and they put the ark up on their shoulders and then he sends the worship leaders the people that play the harp and the lyre not liars, but L Y R E, the ones that play this musical instrument, they play the worship instrument, they 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 praise the Lord, and every six feet David makes a sacrifice. He does not want to transgress God. And so as they travel back into Israel, they usher in the presence of God on the shoulders of praise. Now, all of that is a segue to point out that. We've already seen the praising taking place. And now we're seeing the presence of God being ushered in. And we see that the tribulation is coming to a close. But remember, what was the tribulation's purpose? It was to wake up the nation of Israel, to shake them out of their slumber. Your king is returning. Don't miss him again. But also to shake up the heathen, the ungodly, the unrighteous, the Gentile nations, to allow the things they trusted in to crumble and fall so they'll look to something that they can trust in, someone who will not crumble and let them down, but then also to make up for the kingdom, to make up the bed, to make up the nation, to make up the world, to cleanse it, to purify it and make way for the king to return. Verse 11 through 16, here he is. He's coming in. He's on a white horse, no longer the colt, the foal of a donkey under a banner of peace. But now he's coming in as a husband, but as a conquering king coming in to set up his kingdom. He will mete out righteous judgments and righteous wars on his enemies. There are righteous wars. They will come through Jesus. He's wearing a a robe that's been dipped in blood and Isaiah chapter 63 describes this robe that's dipped in blood from treading out the winepress. And we read that a couple of chapters ago. He says, put in your sickle because the harvest is ready. And then stomp out the, the grapes of the wrath of God. He's, he's crushing the grapes. There will be blood from grapes on his robe because he will be the one judging and pouring out his wrath on the nation's. And we also saw his robe being dipped in blood and it's referenced in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 14. But then notice who's following behind him. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself and come after me. And that following Jesus doesn't stop in this life. They will also be servants and they will also be a part of the army that follows him from heaven to earth because the army and the battle that's going to take place in Armageddon, we've heard it described multiple times. We're going to see it very clearly take place in today's chapter. But the army that's with Jesus is clothed in fine linen, white and clean linen, and they're going to follow on white horses. Now, my question for you is, and I've always had this question about baseball uniforms. Why are they wearing white And you moms are going, yeah, exactly. I know it's a cooler color. I know it looks cool when they slide into home. But my question is always, why are they wearing white garments on a brown dirt field? Maybe many of you moms have thought the same thing. But my point is, is that this army is clothed, did you notice this? Not only in white garments, but it says fine linen. You don't wear fine linen, you wear a chain of mail. You wear a breastplate. You wear a shield. It doesn't describe any of that. Ephesians 6 says that right now the believer is to be prepared for battle. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. The sword of the spirit. The, the, the belt of truth girding our waist. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Blessed are the shoes the, the feet of those that carry good news. But none of that's described here. It says they're clothed in fine linen. That's what you wear to the ball. That's what you wear to go to a banquet. And so as they come in on these white horses, they're adorned not in battle clothes, not in the finest Kevlar, not carrying AKs or ARs, but actually coming in riding on horses following Jesus, I believe it's because they won't actually be needed. They're his posse. They're the ones that bring him glory. But when the battle takes place, he doesn't need a posse. He doesn't need anybody to fight with him. He's going to say the word. It's going to be over. He's going to drop the hammer or the sword, if you will. The armies won't be needed. And in verse 15 through 16, I'm going to read it again. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, and it should strike the nations. This is the broadsword. This isn't the hand-to-hand combat little, like, you know, you carry it and then you're ready to get somebody. This isn't a concealed carry weapon. This is a cannon. This is a manslayer. This is the take the broadsword and pick it up if you can, and then waylay six guys at a time. He's going to mete out judgment And he'll do it quickly, and it will be broad, and it will be complete. There will not be wounded. They will not take people prisoners of war. It will be done. And so it says here, he himself will rule them. He'll strike the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. He'll be all over all authorities. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that his word, the things that proceed from his mouth, how did he begin creation? He spoke a word. How will he mete out judgment? He will do it with his word. And so he will rule them with a rod of iron and Himself, he himself will tread out his enemies. So verse 17, as we close in the last section here. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that, the, that they may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great and i saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, that's gruesome. That's yucky. But verse 17 through 18, it says the angel calls the shot. It's like Babe Ruth stepping up to the plate going, I'm going to put it right there and he's saying that not about himself but he says hey hey birds gather around you're about to have a feast god's going to provide for you something to eat and you will be filled with the flesh of kings you'll be filled with the flesh of their horses you'll be filled with the flesh of these rebellious nations they're going to go down so he calls the shot like someone who's seen the end of the movie But he's talking to the birds. Verse 19, everyone is gathered to war against Jesus Christ. Now remember, in the past few chapters, it says they're gathering together to war against the lamb. Again, not the greatest mascot you could put on your breastplate if you're going into battle. Uh, We fight for the lamb, and we're going to slam. But everyone's gathered to war, and this is the battle of Armageddon. And in Psalm chapter 2, This is described in verse 4 through 6, and I'm going to turn there real quickly, because it says there, why do the nations rage? And we'll get there if I can turn a little quicker. I really need to work on my Bible drill skills. Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, in verse 1, it says, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds and pierces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. He'll speak to them. That's how he'll battle. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. He shall rule with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. And so blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast. And yet those who don't, he says "I" in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet, so verse 20 and 21, two short verses are all it takes to sum up this battle. The efforts to war against our creator are done in two verses. Verse 20, the beast and false prophet are immediately captured and they're contained. And the word of God, verse 21, the sword of the Lord proceeds from Jesus' mouth and kills the rest. And all the enemies of God become bird food. Now, there's a verse I want to show you real quick in Matthew chapter 24 that I have always been confused about until just the other day. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 28. We'll start in uh, verse 15, where he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, This is all about the great tribulation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I've told you this beforehand. And then we saw all of this described in the tribulation. Therefore, verse 26, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will come from the east to the west, setting up his kingdom in the There on the temple mount. For wherever the carcass is. Now think about the context of Revelation 19. The birds will be filled with the flesh. Of these kings and these rulers. And these horses. Where the carcass is. There the eagles. The birds of prey will be gathered together. It's all about this feast of birds. That will be upon all of the ungodly. That have just been killed in the valley of Armageddon. And so. All of a sudden, that verse makes sense in the light of this passage. They will be filled with the, f- the flesh of the ungodly. So, I want to read in Psalm 1, and I should have kept my place there, to close. In Psalm 1, the psalmist kind of gives us our two options. Talks about the righteous, we talked about how to be righteous, talks about the wicked. But in Psalm 1, there's a blessing and there's a curse. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel or the strategies of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor walks along the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This man shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly, though, are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment." Up until the end of the judgment, they're still trying to stand against God. But here it says in Psalm 1, you have to dig. It says, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. He separates them, no longer mixed. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so, Lord Jesus, we saw this very clearly today. The way of the righteous.